and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. Having a little trouble with the video feed, apparently. Uh, hopefully you're hearing me. And um, so uh, <laughs> just going to proceed, and then maybe we can get the video up during the break. But I um, want to say welcome. It is uh, this weekend on the 16th of July, the first anniversary of Traditiones Custodes, Pope Francis's motu proprio restricting the traditional mass. So today we're going to ask how things stand with the traditional Latin mass a year after this controversial motu proprio. Uh, also in a related topic, we're going to explore whatever happened to the Latin, uh, whatever happened to Latin in the Latin rite. But first, uh, we've been going through the Sunday Gospels of the ordinary form of the Mass. Today's no exception. Um, this week began with the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 10, verses 38 through 42, which is the story of Martha and Mary. In the course of their journey, Jesus came to a village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. So she came to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to come and help me. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and upset about many things, when only one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the better part, and it will not be taken away from her. Thus far, the words of the Holy Gospel. Now, this incident is intended to teach that as followers of Jesus, we must not allow secondary things to take pre precedence over the essentials, namely hearing the word of God in order to feed on it and put it into practice. So um, last week's gospel, the story of the Good Samaritan, gave us an example of the love of neighbor. And with Martha and Mary, we have a model of the true love of God. Both sisters loved our Lord, but they showed their love in different ways. Mary was all absorbed, you know, listening to and, and meditating on his words. And then having been taken out of herself by her love of him, she forgot everything else. Martha, on the other hand, was taken up with the active work of serving him. And she could only think of how she might, you know, most perfectly minister to his needs. So Martha exhausted herself in her efforts to prepare food for our Lord while Mary was entirely occupied in being fed by him. And so we can and ought to learn lessons from both sisters. Like Martha, we ought to do our best to fulfill the duties of our state in life, but we should not, on this account, neglect to hear and meditate on the divine word. In Matthew 23, 23, Jesus points out how the Pharisees scrupulously paid their tithes, but neglected to have charity for their neighbors. He said, you should have practiced these things without neglecting the others. Allah, the motto of the Benedictines, ora et labora, pray and work. Now, we can't minister to the wants of our Lord himself the way Martha did, but we can and should minister to him in the person of his brethren, especially the poor and the sick. For whatever we do for these, we do for him, as he said in Matthew 25, 40. And like Martha, we can be taken up with a multitude of occupations. We live a busy life. But a great many of these occupations are not really necessary. But there is one occupation that's absolutely necessary and indispensable for each one of us, which is to love God with our whole heart, mind, and soul and uh, our neighbor as ourself. Right? To save our souls and to win heaven is the highest and last end to which every other object must give way. 
And notice in the scripture um, that Jesus and the Old Testament says, you should love your neighbor as yourself. And that means that, that there must be a properly ordered self-love. And this, this Christian, this Catholic self-love, consists in caring for the salvation of our souls, first of all, above, before every other thing. Now, speaking of Martha and Mary, the Blessed Virgin Mother, uh, the Blessed Mary, Mother of God, all of her life, she practiced most perfectly the virtues for which uh, each of the two sisters was distinguished. So from her childhood, she had attended to that one thing necessary, and for 30 years, she ministered to our Lord's personal needs, most wonderfully combining the active life with the contemplative life, working with her hands while her heart gazed on God. Prayer and work, action and contemplation. She, she was at the same time a mother who had charge of her son and the disciple of that son, treasuring all his words in her heart and imitating his life. On earth, she chose the best part, and in heaven, she attained to the best part, being crowned by her divine Son as the Queen of all saints. So it's easy to see why the Church has chosen this reading for the Gospel of the Feast of the Assumption. Now, in the first Beatitude, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. And what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, we've talked about this a number of times. Poverty of spirit means to be entirely dependent on God. And this is, this is the recurring theme in the Bible. But what does it mean to be dependent on God? What does it mean to depend on God? And I'd like to quickly make three points. First Chronicles 29.11 says, Yours, O Lord, are greatness, power, glory, strength, and majesty. For everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. So, firstly, dependence on God means counting on his control. Now, David acknowledged God's greatness and that our constantly changing world is governed by a constant and unchanging God. And as we see life come and go, and we see material things decay and our friends change and as we grow old and, and pass away— the one thing that we can truly depend on is that God's in control, that his love and his purpose for us never changes. And really, it's only when we can understand this that we can have peace and security, that, that peace that surpasses understanding, the peace that only Christ can give. Number two, dependence on God means counting on him for our daily needs. Uh, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul relates that he uh, and his fellows suffered for the gospel in Asia. He doesn't give specific details about their hardships, but, you know, you can guess, based on the accounts of his missionary journeys in the book of Acts, that the kind of difficulties that he and his companions faced. Well, in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 9, he says, Indeed, in our hearts we felt that we were under a sentence of death. This was so that we not put our trust in ourselves, but in God, who raises the dead. So he writes that they, they felt that they were going to die, and realized they could do nothing to help themselves. They simply had to rely on God. Now, how, how often do you and I depend on our own skills and abilities, you know, um, when life seems easy, <laughs> okay, and only turn to God when we feel unable to help ourselves? But, you know, as you go deeper into the spiritual life, as we realize our real powerlessness without him, as he said, without me, you can do nothing. 
when we recognize our need for his constant help in our lives, we become more dependent, we come to depend on him more and more. God is the source of our power, and we receive his help by keeping in close relationship with him, especially through the Holy Eucharist and frequent confession. And, and this, this is the one thing necessary. With, with this attitude of dependence, our problems, when they come, will drive us to God rather than away from him and help us to learn how to rely on him every day. And lastly, dependence on God means counting on, depending on, the power of prayer. In Mark's gospel, there's an account of the apostles trying unsuccessfully to cast out a demon. And when they asked Jesus why they were unable to cast it out, the scripture says, he answered, this kind cannot be driven out except by prayer and by fasting. Now, some of the ancient manuscripts omit the, the bit about fasting and only say except by prayer. But in any case, the disciples would often face difficult situations that could only be resolved through prayer. Prayer is the key that unlocks the faith in our life. You know, talking about our dependence on God, Bishop Sheen used to say that prayer uh, must be a first response and not a last resort. There isn't any substitute for it. There's, there's nothing to put in place of prayer, especially in circumstances that seem impossible. It's prayer that demonstrates our reliance on God as we invite him to fill us with faith and with the grace to, to handle whatever comes our way. And that requires humility, which was, again, Our, Our Lady, the great exemplar of humility. And, and finally, I, I point out that effective prayer requires a couple of things. Number one, an attitude of complete dependence, yes, but also action. Jesus says to ask, seek, and knock. Ask, and you shall receive. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and the door shall be opened unto you. So Scripture tells us that prayer without action is only half the equation. Right? You know, remember what St. James said about faith and works. But remember, Jesus says that not everyone who says to him, Lord, Lord, is going to see the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. This, then, is the point of the story of Martha and Mary, that in the words of St. Bernard of Clairvaux, action and contemplation are very close companions. They live together in one house on equal terms. Martha and Mary are sisters. And that's no nonsense. Okay, um, I don't have quite enough time to uh, in this segment to jump into the, the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is actually we wanted to give a nod to the gospel for the extraordinary form of last Sunday, which was the feeding of the 4,000, which is taken from Mark chapter 8. Of course, we're all familiar with the feeding of the 5,000 and its connection with the Eucharistic discourse the following day at the synagogue in Capernaum. But both Matthew and Mark record a second miracle, the feeding of the 4,000. Going to find out why when we come back with lots more no-nonsense Catholic right after this. Oh, 
Okay, there I am. Got the Skype up and working. Thanks to Richie in the uh, control room. I'm uh, doing the show remotely from our Orange County headquarters, deep behind the uh, orange curtain here. And uh, great to have you back. And we, on, before the break, I said we were going to give a nod to the um, Extraordinary Form Gospel from last Sunday. We're going to be talking in just a bit about the, the question, whatever happened to Latin in the Latin Rite? And actually, I think that this gospel has something to say about that. Both Matthew and Mark record this second uh, miraculous multiplication of loaves and fishes, right? All the gospels have the feeding of the 5,000, but Matthew and Mark also record a second miracle, the feeding of the 4,000. And why is that? Well, first of all, because it really happened, okay? <laughs> and that really shouldn't come as a surprise. I mean, Matthew gives us the Sermon on the Mount, and Luke gives us the Sermon on the Plain, and they're not quite identical. But you have to realize that Jesus was a traveling preacher for three years, and he probably preached uh, the content of that sermon again and again and again. But why repeat the miraculous multiplication of loaves and fishes? Well, we remember that the feeding of the 5,000 took place by the Sea of Galilee, so, and, and it was in Jewish territory. And the feeding of the 4,000 occurred outside of the promised land in the region of Decapolis, or the Ten Cities, that is to say, in Gentile territory. So here, Christ multiplies seven loaves and two fish and feeds 4,000 men, not counting women and children, and there are seven baskets of leftovers. Now, the numbers and the locations are important. And Jesus himself demonstrates this when he asks the apostles in Mark 8, 19 and 21, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets filled with fragments did you collect? They answered, 12. When I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets filled with fragments did you collect? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? Well, <laughs> understand what? Yeah, Dr. Brant Petrie is, is fond of pointing out that the Gospel of Matthew is, is like a new exodus. And by miraculously feeding multitudes in barren places, Jesus revealed himself as the new Moses, feeding the, the new people of God with the new manna in the wilderness. But, but he's the new Moses, not just for the Jews, but for the whole world. The 12 baskets of fragments collected in the Jewish territory represented the 12 tribes of Israel. I, I would go further and say that uh, perhaps the 5,000 uh, people are that number five is representative of the Pentateuch, the books of the the old law, the old covenant. And then the seven baskets of fragments that are collected outside of the Jewish territory represent the the seven Gentile nations that uh, originally occupied the land of Canaan. The Canaanites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and the Perizzites. And the meaning of the miracle is that all peoples will be gathered in Christ. And the super substantial bread of the Eucharist will be available to all who believe and are baptized in his church. Now, I, I bring up, uh, because St. Mark, I bring this up, I should say, because St. Mark and the mission to the Gentiles, especially Peter's mission to the Gentiles, and the universality of the church, especially uh, the Eucharist or the Holy Mass, all play a part in answering our question, whatever happened to Latin in the Latin rite? I mentioned that last Sunday, or no, last Saturday, rather, July 16, 2022, was the first anniversary of Traditionis Custodis, 
Pope Francis's motu proprio intended to severely curtail the celebration of the traditional Latin Mass. And in that document, the Pope insists that the Novus Ordo Mise is the unique, that is to say, the only true expression of the Lex Orandi, the law of prayer of the Roman Rite. We'll talk about that a little later, if time permits. But the, the first thing I've noticed one year later is that some U.S. bishops have embraced the motu proprio to the point of virtually abolishing the traditional mass in their dioceses, and others, including the two uh, largest dioceses in terms of population, namely Los Angeles and New York, have pretty much resamed, uh, remained the same as they were before Traditionis Custodes. Now, uh, one bishop I know of, at least, uh, has attempted to ban not only the traditional Latin Mass, but celebrations of the new Mass in Latin, <laughs> which is ironic considering it's called the Latin Rite, hence our topic today. Which brings us back to St. Mark. Bishop Papias, one of the fathers of the Church, tells us that Mark went to Rome with St. Peter. Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote accurately all that he remembered of the things said and done by the Lord. Now, why would Peter need an interpreter? And modern scholars are fond of pointing out that the New Testament was written in Greek and, and therefore hypothesized that the Mass was also in Greek more or less exclusively till perhaps the fourth century. Uh, now, now, it's certain that Greek was the lingua franca of the Mediterranean world and, and the Near East for centuries because of the conquest of, of Alexander and, and Hellenization, uh, Cleopatra who was the contemporary of Julius Caesar and the queen of Egypt, was not Egyptian, she was Greek, as was her father, Ptolemy. And Hellenistic culture was very influential on the Roman culture that followed it, and dangerously on the Jewish culture. That's a, the, the book of Sirach is essentially uh, intended as an antidote against the encroaches, encroachment of Greek culture. You know, the um, Roman pantheon was essentially the gods of Olympus with Latin names. Zeus for Jupiter, or Jupiter for Zeus, rather, and Mars for Ares, Venus for Aphrodite, etc. And wealthy Roman families, as well as Jewish ones, kept Greek slaves as tutors for their children to teach them to read and write in Greek. So if you wanted to disseminate information internationally, and that includes the, the Old Testament, which had been translated at the Library of Alexandria some 200, 300 years before, anything that you wanted to have be read by Jew and Gentile, you put it in the language of those few people who could read it all, right? The literary language, the lingua franca, the international language of the time, which was Koine Greek. But in the time of our Lord, Latin was the official language of the empire. When Pontius Pilate had the charge against our Lord tacked up to the cross, the sign read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin which tells us that even in Jerusalem, Romans spoke the language of the empire. Now, Peter was, was a, a fisherman and, uh, and worked in, in, in Gentile territory and with, you know, it was up in the north uh, part of Palestine there. It's very likely that as a tradesman, he spoke Greek along with his native language of Aramaic just in, you know, in order to be able to do business. And yet he takes an interpreter with him to Rome. Why? Because in Rome, you know, despite the, the educated hoi polloi, the language of the man in the street was Latin. And Mark obviously had a Latin name, Marcus, and is traditionally considered the same person as the John Mark of the book of Acts. John being a Hebrew name and Mark a Latin one suggests that he was both a Jew and a Roman citizen. 
And so it makes sense that Peter would need someone fluent in Latin to set up the church in the capital of the empire. Gift of tongues notwithstanding, I'm sure, you know, he needed time to uh, to uh, acclimate. Now, if you're old enough, you uh, may have learned in Catholic school uh, that Matthew's gospel was originally written in Aramaic, which was the language of Jesus, but then it was translated into Greek for the international audience. You may not have heard that the gospel of Mark may have originally been written in Latin. Now, this is certainly a minority opinion amongst modern scholars, but it is consistent with the tradition which modern or, should, you know, dare I say, modernist scholars tend to dismiss. But we know from its content that Mark's gospel was written for a Gentile audience because its emphasis is on the mighty works of Jesus, and it's not so much concerned with his fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament, you know, which would have mattered to a Jewish audience, but which a Roman audience would have been unfamiliar. In any case, the, the tradition of the church, and that includes many standard works written prior to Vatican II, tell us that Latin was the language used by St. Peter when he first said Mass at Rome. Uh, in the words of Pope Innocent III, it was the language in which that prince of the apostles drew up the liturgy, which, together with the knowledge of the gospel, he and his successors, the popes, imparted to the different peoples of the Western world. See, unlike the Near East, Latin was the international language of what would become Christendom and formed the basis for, for the modern vernacular languages of Italy, France, Spain, Portugal, all the Romance languages, uh, so-called from their origin in Latin, or Roman, if you will. So uh, the Roman canon, which is now known as Eucharistic Prayer Number 1, among the many options of the Novus Ordo, is in fact the most venerable of Eucharistic prayers, having, said, or having been said uh, by St. Peter himself. And this is according to a standard work called The Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, pardon me, <coughs> sorry, by Father Michael Mueller, that, that from the time of the apostles on down, Latin was invariably used at the altar throughout the western parts of Christendom. And that would include non-Romance language countries like England, and Ireland, Scotland, Germany, uh, Hungary, Poland. And even though their inhabitants very frequently did not understand the language, Father Mueller, and he, he was writing in 1874, he says, the Catholic Church, through an aversion to innovations, I love that, the church is like, the church is allergic to change, the Catholic Church, through an aversion to innovations, carefully continues to celebrate her liturgy in that same tongue which apostolic men and saints have used for a similar purpose during more than 18 centuries. <clears throat> Sorry, I got a little bit of a throg fog in my throat. <clears> throat> I apologize. Uh, the point is, unchangeable dogmas require an unchangeable language. Catholic Church cannot change because it's the Church of God, who is immutable, that is to say, unchangeable. Consequently, the language of the Church must also be unchangeable. In 1947, Pope Pius XII said in his encyclical Mediator Dei, quote, the use of the Latin language, customary in a considerable portion of the church, is a manifest and beautiful sign of unity, as well as an effective antidote for any corruption of doctrinal truth. In 1962, during, during Vatican II, Pope St. John XXIII, who was the pope who called Vatican II in the first place, 
published an encyclical called Viterum Sapientia on the promotion of the study of Latin. Among other reasons, he said, quoting now, of its very nature, Latin is most suitable for promoting every form of culture among peoples. It gives rise to no jealousies. It does not favor any one nation, but presents itself with equal impartiality to all, and is equally acceptable to all. And, for these reasons, the Apostolic See has always been at pains to preserve Latin, deeming it worthy of being used in the exercise of her teaching authority as the splendid vesture of her heavenly doctrine and sacred laws. She further requires her sacred ministers to use it, for by so doing they are the better able, wherever they may be, to acquaint themselves with the mind of the Holy See on any matter, and communicate the more easily with Rome and with one another. What happened when Paul VI promulgated the Novus Ordo in 1970? What did he say? We'll find out when we come back with lots more no-nonsense Catholic on Virgin Most Powerful Radio right after this. Stay with us. Welcome back. We're talking about what happened to Latin and the Latin Rite and how it was used uh, throughout the Western Church, really from the time of the Apostles up until the New Mass, and how even uh, modern popes like Pius Twelfth and even uh, John Twenty-Third, after he called the uh, Second Vatican Council, uh, pointed out how important it was to retain the use of Latin. And even Paul VI, now St. Paul VI, when he promulgated the Novus Ordo Missae in 1970, he, he lamented the loss of Latin. Uh, and he actually he, he referred to John XXIII's language about the beautiful vesture in which the language is dressed because he thought that vernacular was important to help people understand. But he assured Catholics that Latin would not disappear from the liturgy, noting that in Sacrosanctum Concilium, Vatican II stressed that Latin was to be retained in the Latin rite and that the faithful must be able to say all their parts of the Mass right, all the prayers and all the responses that we say at Mass, in Latin. Now, as we know, no serious attempt was ever really made in that direction, and, and most Novus Ordo Masses today are celebrated without a word of Latin from the priest or the people. And yet the official version of the new Missal, the Missale Romanum, is, as you might guess, in Latin. Mass was always said in Latin because a universal church requires a universal language. Catholic Church is the same in every place, in every nation, and in consequently, it's the official language. Um, uh, its official language was always and everywhere the same, right, in, to secure uniformity in the liturgy. And Father Mueller points out that the, the variety of languages, oh, by the way, I, was, I mentioned Father Mueller's book, Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. I'm, I've got a copy of it here. Uh, let's see. I can make that. I can get my camera to focus on it. <laughs> well, I got there for a second. Anyway, you can see that this is not an, an insubstantial work. This is a, a standard work on the Mass. Um, he points out in, in uh, the book that the variety of language, languages was a punishment, that it was a consequence of sin, that it was inflicted by God after uh, he destroyed the Tower of Babel so that the human race might be dispersed over the faiths of the earth. 
And the Holy Church, the Immaculate Spouse of Jesus Christ, has been established for the express purpose of destroying sin and reuniting all of mankind. Consequently, Father Mueller says, she must everywhere speak the same language. But language is no longer spoken. I mean, it's no longer a spoken language at all. It's a dead language and was when, uh, when Father Mueller wrote his book. So why celebrate the liturgy in a dead language? Well, it's a well-known fact that the meaning of words changes in the course of everyday usage. Words which once had a good meaning are now used in a vulgar or, or a ridiculous sense. Consider the word gay, for example. Now, the Church, enlightened by the Holy Ghost, has chosen a language which is not liable to such changes. Now, historically, I mean, back in the days when the traditional Latin Mass was simply called the Mass, which means, you know, for the 15 centuries or more preceding the Second Vatican Council, all the sermons and instructions that were addressed to the people were in the vernacular language, the language of the country. And then with the advent of modern printing, even the prayers of the Mass were translated um, in hand missiles. And, you know, the ordinary of the Mass actually appeared in most Catholic prayer books. I have a number of older prayer books that have the ordinary of the Mass in them. And, you know, Latin on one side and English on the other. So it really isn't any disadvantage to a Catholic when Mass is celebrated in Latin, especially back in the days when the pastors of the church were careful to comply with the injunctions of the Council of Trent to instruct their flocks, especially on the nature of the sacrifice, and to explain to them the manner in which they assist the celebrating priest with prayers and devotions that, that are best adapted to every portion of the Mass. Again, most older prayer books had the actual prayers of the Mass, but also private prayers that could be said during the various parts of the Mass. And with a bit of practice, it's within the reach of anyone to unite himself with the prayers that are said in the traditional Latin Mass. And, and that said, the prayers of the priest at the altar are addressed to Almighty God, not the congregation. You know, that's why in the traditional Mass, the priest faces the altar and not the people. And when the priest turns from the altar toward the people, that's a tangible sign that, that his words, like the Orate Fratres or the Ecce Agnus Dei, uh, you know, Dominus Fobiscum, are now directed to us. Anyway, to even desire to understand everything of the divine mystery, which is the holy sacrifice of the Mass, is impossible. Because mystery, by definition, is a truth that you cannot fully comprehend. For example, faithful Catholics know well that the sacrifice of the Mass is the self-same, once-for-all sacrifice that Jesus Christ offered to his Father on the cross, because both the priest and the victim are the same. But according to recent surveys, only about 25% of Novus Ordo Catholics believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, whereas it's closer to 100% amongst uh, traditional Catholics who attend the Mass in, in Latin. And like their ancestors, even before the hand missiles, their faith in the real presence is more than sufficient to enkindle devotion in their hearts. And as Father Mueller said, to excite in their souls appropriate acts of adoration, thanksgiving, and repentance, though they may not understand the prayers which the priest is uttering. I think it's worthwhile to, to quote him at length here. He says, For this reason... It is that the faithful, pressed by different wants, go to the adorable mysteries of the Mass, never thinking of the language in which they are celebrated. 
Some, moved by the force of calamities, hasten thither to lay their sorrows at the feet of Jesus. Others go to ask for some grace or special mercy, knowing that the Heavenly Father can refuse nothing to His Son. Many feel constrained to fly thither to proclaim their gratitude and to pour forth the love of a thankful heart, knowing that there is nothing so worthy of being offered to God as the sacred body and blood of the eternal victim. More press forward to give glory to God and to honor His saints. For in the celebration of these mysteries of love alone can we pay worthy homage to his adorable majesty while we bear witness to our reverence for those who served him. Beautiful. And speaking of the saints, it's probably worth mentioning that the great Western saints who have inspired generations of Catholics and interceded for them for centuries were all formed by worshiping at the Mass in Latin. That, then, is the connection to the feeding of the 4,000, to the mission of the Gentiles, especially Peter's mission to the Romans, facilitated by the Latin language of Peter's interpreter, St. Mark, the universal language of the universal church. But someone might ask, you know, shouldn't the liturgy reflect reflect the times and the cultures of the people? I mean, we get told that a lot. (laughs) How to begin? Uh, The Mass is the supreme act of the worship of God, who is above and beyond time and language and culture. The focus and the end of the Mass is to give God the honor and reverence due to him. For centuries, it was the boast of the Church that a Catholic attend attend Mass anywhere in the world and always find it the same. And the same would still hold true if it were possible to travel in time that a Mass offered by a Catholic priest in in the 6th century, say living in Rome in in A.D. 570, would be nearly the same as that offered in the same city in the year 1570. And moreover, that Mass offered in 1570 would be substantially the same as one offered by a priest living in China in 1950 or at my parish church last Sunday. And this fact reflects clearly two of the four marks of the Catholic Church its unity, and its Catholicity, both in regard to location and time. But isn't Latin Mass unsuitable for modern man and his modern needs? As though, you know, like modern man is some is some new form of homo sapiens that never existed before. Uh, G.K. Chesterton was fond of saying that the, the road of history is strewn with the bodies of dead moderns. Right, what he's saying, of course, is that everybody's a modern man in his own age. What, what's so special about us? Anyway, <clears throat> some people object that they wouldn't get much out of a traditional Latin Mass because it, you know, they wouldn't be able to understand it. It, it would be boring because they don't understand Latin, and the, and the priest doesn't doesn't make the Mass engaging by getting the people involved. He just says the same thing every time, and, and, and that it even turns his back on them most of the time and that they prefer the upbeat modern music, and on and on and on. Now, I suspect most folks that hold that opinion have probably never assisted at a traditional Latin Mass. But uh, in any case, what they forget is that it's not a matter of personal opinion. Holy sacrifice of the Mass isn't for us, it's for God. Worship isn't a social gathering. It's not intended to be a, a source of entertainment or the source of, you know, warm, fuzzy feelings. Attending Mass, it's a precept of the Church. It's a duty. It's the Church's official acknowledgement of God's sovereignty and His infinite perfections. 
and it is an expression of our submission to him as creatures to their creator and Lord. As um, the old catechism teaches, the, the ends of the Holy Mass, the, the purpose for which the Mass is offered, are first to adore God as our creator and Lord, second, to thank him for his many favors, and third, to ask him to bestow his blessings on us all, and then fourthly, to satisfy the justice of God for the sins committed against him. This gave rise to the acronym ACTS, Adoration, Contrition, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. These are the four great ends of prayer. Moreover, the Holy Mass is the public worship offered by the entire church to God through Jesus Christ, who, as eternal high priest, offers himself to his eternal father as he did on the cross. This, you know, through the priest acting in persona Christi. Christ is the Lamb of God. He is the spotless victim whose sacrifice takes away the sins of the world. He is the lamb standing as it were slain, as it says in the apocalypse. That is, offering to his heavenly father again the once for all sacrifice of his life on the cross. The mass then is the fulfillment of the prophecy of uh, Malachi, From the rising of the sun, even to the going down, in every place there is sacrifice and there is offered to my name a clean oblation. And that's no nonsense. All right, when we come back, I'm going to offer a couple of reflections on Pope Francis's uh, Moda Proprio Traditionis Custodes, and in light of uh, his reflection, Desiderio Desideravi. So stay with us. We'll be right back with lots more No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. July the 16th, 2022, is the anniversary of Traditionis Custodes, motu proprio of Pope Francis, intended to undo the good fruits of the motu proprio of his immediate predecessor, Benedict XVI. And in light of the uh, newly published reflection from the Congregation of Divine Worship, Desiderio Desideravi, I would like to offer a few reflections of my own. So please feel free to take these remarks cum grano salis, okay, with a grain of salt because they are my reflections and not dogmatic teaching. Now, it would seem to me that it should be clear to anyone paying attention that Pope Francis would like to promote the notion that not just Samorum Pontificum, but the traditional Latin Mass itself has been abrogated and should be relegated to the dustbin of history. But I'd point out that this is not the first time this has happened. Pope St. Paul VI suggested the same in his address uh, that promulgated the Novus Ordo Missae back in 1970. He proclaimed that from the first Sunday of Advent, 1970, that his new missal was to be used exclusively throughout the Latin Rite Church. In 1974, the Congregation for Divine Worship produced a document to the same effect. Uh, a couple of years later, in 1976, Paul VI accused the, the, the mere handful handful of priests and bishops still using the traditional mass of, quote, placing them placing themselves outside obedience and communion with the successor of Peter and therefore outside the church, unquote. And yet, 10 years later, in 1986, Pope St. John Paul II found it necessary to appoint a panel of nine cardinals to answer the question, 
has the traditional Latin Mass been abrogated? And that panel included Alphonse Cardinal Stickler and Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, the future Benedict XVI. And the commission concluded that what Benedict XVI, uh, what Benedict XVI reiterated in Samorum Pontificum, that the traditional Latin Mass has never been abrogated. Now, John Paul II was unwilling to simply liberate the celebration of the traditional Latin Mass, and so he issued an indult, uh, Ecclesia Dei, a special permission to celebrate the traditional Mass for certain priests under certain conditions. And that was the, the policy reinstated now by Pope Francis under even more restrictive conditions, and unlike John Paul II's Ecclesia Dei indult, intended to eradicate the celebration of the traditional Mass rather than to accommodate what uh, John Paul called the legitimate desires of the faithful. Now, Benedict XVI demonstrated in Samorum Pontificum that John Paul II's indult was frankly unnecessary, you know, in light of his own commission's findings, because, as Benedict said, the traditional Latin Mass has never been abrogated. Okay, words of one syllable. Actually, that's right what's in the, the document. So if that's the problem, why not just abrogate it then in no uncertain terms? Well, I'm in sales, not in management, <laughs> but I suspect that the reason may be found in the document Quo Primum of Pope St. Pius V. Now, it's a very different document from the address that promulgated the Novus Ordo by Paul VI. Firstly, sorry, rented lips. Firstly, in issuing Quo Primum, Pius V was carrying out the decrees of a dogmatic council. The traditional Roman rite of the Mass that he promulgated was not an exceptional rite, but the universal rite of the Latin Church, being the rite of the See of Rome. The Pope was simply restating the, uh, at the time, 16th century-long tradition of the Church. And this he officially codified over any recent local usage to protect the church against innovations from the Protestant reformers. Remember, people were, you know, a lot of times going to the same church with the same pastor, didn't even know they were Protestants, right? So strictly speaking, there is no Tridentine Mass. There is no Missal of Pius V. Rather, the Mass of the Ages, essentially as it's been celebrated since at least the reforms of Pope St. Gregory in the 6th century, Okay, it's essentially the same. Now, Paul VI, on the other hand, introduced a new missal. The Novus Ordo Mise was Paul VI's project and not the directive of the council. I can't stress that enough because it's it's all over the church today that's, that Vatican II called for the new mass. It's not true. Sacrosanctum Concilium did not call for a new rite of mass. In fact, as has been stated again and again and again, it called for the Latin language and Gregorian chant and et cetera, et cetera, to be retained in the Roman rite. And it stipulated in Article 23, I'm quoting now, that sound tradition may be retained. There must be no innovations unless the good of the church genuinely and certainly requires them. And care must be taken that any new forms adopted should in some way grow organically from forms already existing. And it says, as far as possible, notable differences between the rites used in adjacent regions must be carefully avoided. In other words, mass in place A shouldn't be different from the mass in place B. 
But the fact is that today there are so many novel options in the Novus Ordo Mise that virtually no two celebrations of the new mass are identical, and many are quite different one from another, sometimes even on the same Sunday in the same parish. And I have yet to see offered any good reason for taking almost all the references to sin and hell and judgment out of the prayers of the Mass. For example, um, you know, uh, much less been presented with a genuine and certain requirement. Keeping this in mind, as well as the direction that, quote, any new forms adopted should in some way grow organically from forms already existing, how do you explain the need for all the new Eucharistic prayers that have been introduced, often composed out of whole cloth? Or why are there three different penitential rites? See, at the close of Vatican II, there was precisely one Eucharistic prayer in the Latin rite, the Venerable Roman Canon. In the current Roman Missal and the authorized supplements, there are now at least 15 Eucharistic prayers. Now, this is obviously not consistent with the tradition. It obviously didn't grow organically. So again, why not just unambiguously abrogate the traditional Latin Mass and have done with it? Well, I suspect, and this just is me now, I suspect that one reason may be that according to Quo Primum, at no time in the future can a priest, secular or order, ever be forced to use any other way of saying Mass. Hence, the more you know, radical traditionalists, like the Society of St. Pius X, have suggested that any suspension or other canonical penalty for refusing to say the new Mass or for adhering to the traditional rite uh, are invalid in virtue of the bull quo primum of St. Pius V, which gave to all priests the perpetual right to celebrate the Mass of the Ages and declares as null and void, quote, any censures against a priest who celebrates this Mass. Now, I, I've heard quite often, I've written about it, even in my book, uh, the idea that a pope cannot bind future popes on some disciplinary matter, right, of, his, of some part of his own authentic magisterium. But it seems like Pius V wasn't binding the church to something new. He was simply acknowledging that he himself was bound, as are all popes, to the sacred tradition of the church. And he said, furthermore, quoting now, by virtue of our apostolic authority, we grant and concede in perpetuity for the chanting or reading of the Mass in any church whatsoever, this missal is hereafter to be followed absolutely without any scruple of conscience or fear of incurring any penalty, judgment, or censure, and may be freely and lawfully used. Nor are superiors, administrators, canons, chaplains, and other secular priests or religious, of whatever title designated, obliged to celebrate the Mass otherwise than was enjoined by us. We likewise declare and ordain that no one whosoever is forced or, co or, co or coerced say that again, we likewise declare and ordain that no one whosoever is forced or, or coerced to alter this missile, and that this present document cannot be revoked or modified, but remains always valid and retain its full force. Therefore, no one whosoever is permitted to alter this notice of our permission, statute, ordinance, command, precept, grant, indult, declaration, will, decree, and prohibition, right? So not one, not one iota. Would anyone, however, presume to commit such an act 
he should know that he will incur the wrath of Almighty God and the blessed apostles Peter and Paul. Okay, well, I can't, you can't get much clearer than that. So I simply asked the question, what happened to Latin and the Latin rite? Well, <clears throat> is this the explanation for why the traditional mass has never been abrogated? We have a new mass, it's in the vernacular, but why, why not abrogate the traditional mass? Could it have something to do with what Pius V said in Quo Primum about incurring the wrath of Almighty God and the blessed apostles Peter and Paul? Well, I don't know. I do not have the answer to that question. But I can tell you what I do know. I can tell you right now that I would not be the one. <laughs> I would not want to be the one who, to challenge it. And that's no nonsense. All right. Um, thank you for being with us. I uh, just have a couple of minutes left here. want to um, encourage you, and I don't, I don't do this very often, probably not often enough, but I want to encourage you to visit our website. Go to vmpr.org. Um, you can check out all the shows there. You can see everything that's kind of happening with us. Uh, we have some books and, and other materials that uh, are on offer for in you know return for a donation. And, of course, you can go there and click the big blue Donate button and uh, make a donation to Virgin Most Powerful Radio or become a monthly donor. And that's something that we try to really encourage. You know, we appreciate the support of everyone who listens, uh, especially your prayers. We need your spiritual support really more than anything. Um, but also your uh, financial support as well, because uh, these programs are free to whoever wants them. And that includes radio stations, if, if you know, if they want to broadcast them on radio, and they do around the country. And and it's all for free, but it, it isn't free to produce these programs. It costs money and maintaining our, our, our offices and the, the Sacred Heart Chapel, all the rest of it. Um, it's not a um, an inexpensive proposition. So we need your spiritual support, but we need financial support as well. And probably the best way you can do that is be by becoming a monthly donor. Because if we have enough monthly donors, then just like in your own household, we can budget for the things that we uh, need and for the, the, the ongoing expenses that we continue to occur month after month after month. So anyway, thank you. If you're already a supporter, thank you very much. Thank you for your prayers. And uh, please visit the website, download the, the smartphone app, and uh, and consider prayerfully making a donation to Virgin Most Powerful Radio, because we could certainly use it. All right. In the meantime, uh, going to be back next week and do it all again. Thank you for being with us this time. Thanks for listening. And may God richly bless you and your family. 